Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Charles Patton, director of the Commonweal Biomonitoring Resource Center and host Erwin Keller, part of our TNS Sonoma Living in the Ashes series. I'm Erwin Keller. I'm your host tonight, uh, generally the host for the uh, Sonoma County series of the New School. And um, I'm delighted to be sitting here with Charles Patton tonight. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Charles. Um, and then uh, and then we're going to talk about tonight's topic, both the science of it and what it means to what it means to all of us who actually live here in this county and have been um, caring about our firefighters and who have actually been breathing the air since the fires during and since. So um, Charles is a founder and director for 20 years of the Commonweal Biomonitoring Resource Center. Her program works with medical schools, environmental groups, government agencies, and professional organizations, such as the International Association of Firefighters, to implement biomonitoring projects that are requested by community organizations, and then bringing the project outcomes back to the community. Charles is also Special Projects Director for Commonweal's Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is a network of more than 3,000 health professionals, scientists, and representatives from health-affected groups interested in exploring linkages between environment and health outcomes. From 1998 to 2001, Charles was the uh, Northern Co-Chair for the International POPs Elimination, uh, Elimination Network. And POPs are persistent organic pollutants, including DDT and other powerful pesticides. And Charles' group worked closely with governments to formulate the Stockholm Convention, a legally binding treaty that eliminates or severely restricts 12 POP chemicals. Do we say POP or do we say POP? We say POPs. We say POPs? We say POPs. So for us Midwesterners that grew up drinking pop. That's very unsettling. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, Charles' program at Commonweal is currently doing... <laughs> Sorry. It is. Is currently doing biomonitoring for uh, uh, firefighters who battled the fires here in Sonoma County in October, and we'll be talking about that in some depth. Charles, despite all of this um, heavy subject matter about, uh, about heavy metals is one of the most delightful people I know. So let's welcome Sean Patton. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Well, thank you for everyone for coming. Uh, I have a lot of stories I'd like to tell you and, and talk to you about the work I do and why I do it and what biomonitoring actually means and how we might hold the idea that our bodies are carrying hundreds of thousands of chemicals most of which we don't know much about, but some we know a lot about it. It's not good news. So do you want to ask me questions? Well, why don't you, why don't you start in by telling us what biomonitoring is? Because okay. when I first heard the word, I was picturing people walking around with like electrodes stuck to them and <laughs> machines trailing them, but it's not that. No, it's not, and this is going to be a really interesting interview. <laughs> oh, going by to the way, thinking. thank you all for coming. Yes, thank you for <laughs> Biomonitoring, human biomonitoring is testing human fluids and substances for the presence of toxic chemicals or chemical substances in general. But my work is looking at chemicals that we know have some kind of association with health outcomes that are probably adverse. So that's what biomonitoring means. I think we used to look at air, 
and water, soil, to try to figure out what was in human bodies. But it's, it's reversed a little bit now. Now we're looking at human bodies to try to understand what, what might be in the environment and what it all means, because our bodies are actually walking around and taking in through inhalation, dermal exposure, and ingestion, the chemicals that surround us in our natural environment. So in, in this room, for example, uh, it could well be that this rug is, contain, uh, is uh, coated with stain-resistant chemicals or waterproofing chemicals called PFAS chemicals. The foam in the chairs might be containing uh, flame retardants. The paints on the walls might have other kinds of chemicals. The wood might be finished with PCBs, which often happens. Uh, the electrical wiring will have assorted chemicals as well. So we live Maybe we now, could talk about a hypothetical building. Or a hypothetical <laughs> building. So I've always been interested in the fact that our bodies are really mirroring what's happening to the globe, as, which is now completely uh, polluted with the chemicals that humans have used, and most of which we've manufactured and put into use since World War II. So that's the short version of human biomonitoring and what I do with it. And I've used human biomonitoring uh, for many years now to try to raise awareness about what chemicals we're carrying in our body, what it might mean to our personal community, global health, and what we might do about it. What can we turn off the pipeline? Or how can we make ourselves resilient? What can, how can, and how can we carry this information that we are carrying chemicals in our bodies? So that's, that's what work I've been doing for a number of years now. And I think it probably started this, this compelling interest when I was very young and my piano teacher was married to a Russian aristocrat. Uh, Romanov, actually. And when she started telling me about her husband and his escape from Russia, she saw that my eyes light up and she realized I had kind of a, a political mind in this small town of Colorado. So she, as a special Christmas present, my piano teacher gave me a subscription to the Atomic Bulletin, the science of the bulletin that talks about the doomsday clock. And I got, <laughs> I was fascinated in this old guard Republican town and was just stunned that the world was being held to ransom by people who were making crazy decisions about above ground uh, you know, test, test bombs. And I got really interested in the idea of fallout and read about Barry Commoner, who did the first biomonitoring by looking at children's teeth from around the country, had mothers sent in their children's teeth, and was finding evidence of strontium-90, which is a product of above-ground bomb testing in Vermont, mm -hmm. which got there all the way from you know, the south, southwest, where the bomb testings were happening in all Los Alamos. So you know, it's been a, a long, a, a kind of a long fascination of mine about what we're creating and what happens to those chemicals. So how do the chemicals get into our bodies? What are the ways? Well, a number, this is the usual ways. People used to think it was mostly from the food we ingested, from the, the chemicals we would, would come into our body from the food we ingested. For example, uh, a chemical that is now banned PCBs is a flame retardant. It's banned by the Stockholm Convention. It's one of those chemicals, these POPs chemicals, that once it's in the environment, it lasts a very long time. It does not break down. And when it goes into the human body, it'll take up residence for years in fatty tissue. 
adipose tissue, any place there's oil in the body. And you can, uh, you can, you can eat it uh, easily if you, for example, and it tends to do it like colder, colder climates, kind of leapfrogs up into the Arctic. You find a lot of concentrations of P P PCBs around the Arctic. You find that PCBs in uh, beluga whales, which we've known for 15 years, beluga whale flesh is so contaminated with PCBs and other chemicals that it would be considered hazardous waste. We've known this for a very long time. This is not news to anybody. Uh, but PCBs will um, go to cold climates. The idea is that if you were uh, near a freeway uh, or a shipyard where PCBs had been used and they're in the soil, you would not go to a grocery store to the food section where the butter is, which would be a cold place, because every time the door would open, PCBs on dust on dust would go into the grocery store and go to the butter or fat, you know, or milk or whatever. So uh, who knows if that's true? But people have done tests on butter and found high levels of PCBs. So a lot of oh, chemicals will go into our body through ingestion and PCBs and kind of chemicals, if I said, will go in and be in our bodies for a number of years, all right? But you could also inhale chemicals. Um, they're simply in dust particles in the air. And, and uh, if you were around a fire, for example, and there are ultra-fine particles that are created from the fire, these are very, very tiny, they will go into the lungs, and attached to them may be other chemicals. And those chemicals then go into the lungs, go out through the ventricles of the lungs, into the bloodstream, and then can be deposited in different places in the body. That's one thing that happens just through inhalation. If you're a firefighter, um, and you're fighting those fires, uh, your, your pores uh, are gonna be open from the heat and from the perspiration, high metabolism, and your rate of dermal exposure as a firefighter to these chemicals, which could be in the air, could be in your turnout gear, um, uh, will go into your skin and then into the bloodstream and then once again deposited. So those are the three ways, inhalation, ingestion, and dermal exposures. Where do those chemicals come from in the first place? Is that the question you're interested in? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I mean, certainly in the case of our fire, in our fire, we know where everything came from, right? It came from all of our homes. It came from all of our belongings mm -hmm. and all of the plastic things and metal things that, we, that we've collected over the years, never thinking that we would be, and insulation and asbestos and things that we never expected to be breathing for weeks. That's right. Well, I think well, these, these chemicals are in household products for sure. As you all know, there could be in many, many things that we use, whether it's furniture, carpets, fabrics, plastic toys, computers, wiring, insulation, building materials, and so on. But the question is, what happens to these uh, products, daily products, uh, when they burn? Okay, and that's that's to me is really interesting. Yeah, there's something about all of these products being things that are for our comfort, things to make us feel comfortable and safe and cared for, that uh, that then turn out to be 
so dangerous in these instances. Know, it's and so not like, in, you know, it's not yeah. like in, in a science fiction movie, like don't touch the alien probe. Right. You know, this is your sofa and your cozy blanket. That's true. I've ha- I had a woman firefighter come up to me and she said, you know, she, she's trained to walk into a three-story raging fire without fear. She's afraid to sit on her couch, mm-hmm. right? Because the, her couch may have, be an older couch and have flavored tartans and the polyurethane foam. And some of those, that, those chemicals, those PBDEs in that foam are related to cancer, for one thing. And um, otherwise, these flavotards in the polyurethane foam aren't molecularly bound to the foam, so they will migrate out of the foam and be part of the dust in the household. And once they're in the dust, children could easily ingest them. And there's very good science to relate exposures to these PBDEs to neurological aberrations in children who, are, who have in their bodies slightly, they're on the slightly in the higher side of average exposures to human beings, but they do create a loss of IQ points for one thing. Mm-hmm. What are other health impacts that we see from the POPs and the, and the other um, chemicals that we might see in a fire situation? Uh, uh, the goal isn't to scare everyone, but I scare you. but on the other hand, well, I think we need to be. I think we need to know like what yeah, the I risks are so, so that we can yeah, yeah. respond as a community. Absolutely, we're, we're used to thinking that X will cause Y, and this chemical can be related to this health outcome. All right, so a lot of a chemical that is created when flame retardants burn which is not used for anything else, is called dioxin, chlorinated bryomin and adoxids. These are carcinogens. So if you're exposed to those, you have a much greater risk of getting cancer. But it's really not that simple because it turns out that many chemicals uh, are toxic depending on timing of exposure during periods of vulnerability. And they're also, their toxicity can be mediated by other kinds of things that are going on in your life. Uh, so let's go with the timing and exposure. There are some chemicals that at very small levels can affect the developing fetus during different times, the nine-month nine gestation period. And the effects can be very different depending on which month the, the developing fetus is affected. All right, and sometimes those kinds of health outcomes may not show up until puberty or later on in life. For example, bisphenol A, the kind of chemical that everybody is avoiding from water bottles. In animal studies, uh, in, uh, fetal exposure uh, is related in, in, in lab animals to um, uh, breast tumors, basically. Breast cancer, breast tumors. Because bisphenol A to the body looks like estrogen. It looks like a hormone. So these endocrine disrupting chemicals at very small amounts can start triggering changes in the body and the developing systems where this immunological system, the neurological system, or reproductive system can, treat, can create changes that are going to be adverse. So that kind of timing of exposure 
you know, early childhood as well as a very time when, when cells are differentiating and proliferating. That's a very vulnerable time. Puberty is a very vulnerable time. The months when a, the first month when a woman is pregnant and her breast immediately starts preparing herself to produce milk, that's a very vulnerable time. So exposures to, to certain small amounts of chemicals, parts per billion can have an effect. Parts per billion is uh, one drop of water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool or you know, uh, a half a teaspoon of salt and a ton of potato chips. I mean, that's, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. But those can have a profound effect. So that's one thing to remember. It's, it, it's, it's the dose makes the poison. Yes, but it's more than that. It's how vulnerable is that particular body at that time. But let me just say other things too. Yeah, please. And then you can kick me and say, Quiet. No. My husband won't let me talk about chemicals at parties because he says I'm no fun whatsoever. <laughs> and it's really true. But I think it's important that we know what's real and then we can take it on and hold it and, 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 and figure out what we're going to do about it. Uh, the other thing to know, for example, has to do with stress, all right? Um, if you uh, take rats from a litter and stress them, so like take them away from the mom and then put them back, put, put them away from the mom and put them back. So they're stressed out because they don't know what, what they're going to be taken away from their source of food and nurturing. They're very scared all the time. Um, and then compare them to rats that were with baby rats that are always with the mom. And you give them both, um, or you expose them both to lead. The baby rats who are in stress uh, given half the amount of lead exposure, react as, as much to the lead as the rats that were given a full dose of lead. So stress itself can exacerbate the effect of tox some toxic chemicals. Now, most of the research is done in heavy metals in this way, but stress can have a profound effect about on how our body reacts to toxics. And of course, during the fire, we were all breathing all of this, and we were all we were all stressed like we had never been or had not been yeah. since, you know, terrible traumatic experiences. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I want to come back to all of this and continue in this direction, but, but you mentioned plastic bottles for a moment, and I thought, you know, here in health-conscious Sonoma County, we should maybe just take a, do a sidebar on plastic bottles, whatever you have to say about plastic bottles. Sure. I don't think there's been any test of any plastic water bottle that doesn't contain a chemical that is not estrogenic. All plastic water bottles will have a, a chemical that will, will act like estrogen. Very low levels, very low levels, but it will be there. Even that really tough, thick glass. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, it could be that there are water bottles out there made of plastic that don't have an estrogenic type chemical, but I haven't seen a, a test yet that actually proves that. So, so you know, these, these are small amounts, very small amounts, and if you're adult, the, the effects may be minimal, but it's good to remember that you might be getting estrogenic chemicals from a variety of sources or other chemicals that can uh, exacerbate the effects of estrogen. Are there any chemicals that you're particularly worried about that might have been launched into the atmosphere from the fire that we, you wouldn't normally have um, contact with or ha be at risk for? Well, yeah, I think uh, um, right after the fire, 
or during the fire, um, a, a set of chemicals called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are produced in complete combustion. And some of them are benign, but some are carcinogenic. And so those will have been released and will be in the air and can be part of the dust and stick around for a while. So those are very dangerous, very much concerned with about those. Uh, benzene, uh, uh, things that are related to diesel production, those are very dangerous. Uh, the flame retardants, the polybrominated diphenyl ethers, and these are chemicals that are being phased out, but slowly. They were, you know, they're in upholstered furniture. How often do you replace your couch? You know, I don't know. Uh, not very often. So when the PBDEs burn, they will produce dioxins and furans, and those will stick around in dust for quite some time, presumably. Uh, you know, rains come, winds come, things move around, but I'm very much concerned about those. Uh, then uh, just, just when, uh, well, well, I'll tell you, I picked up the newspaper one day and saw a picture of a firefighter fighting the fire. Uh, and, and firefighters are sent out from San Francisco and Santa Clara, and as you know, Santa Rosa and Cotati, Cotati basically are sent out to fight wildfires. Mm -hmm. So they're wearing kind of orange jumpsuits where some moisture resistant, flame resistance, and because they're lightweight, you can move really quickly because you need to run fast in a wildfire. But no particularly headgear necessarily. Firefighters don't like to wear those respirators. They call them snot collectors, basically, mm -hmm. because they don't seem to really filter out things. They feel they're ineffective. So a lot of fires weren't wearing anything. So I'm watching a firefighter wearing this kind of very orange jumpsuit. They call them oranges, right, basically, with a hose and fighting a building, uh, a fire on fire, horrendous fire. And, and I, so I thought, this is, this is not good because it's quite clear that ordinarily for that kind of fire, fire fighting, you would have full turnout gear, mm -hmm. protective gear, a padded jacket, a, um, padded underneath, pants, boots, helmet, an independent air source, all the, all the equipment that you need to protect yourself as much as possible. And that was not happening. And learning that these firefighters were fighting 14 days straight, 24-hour shifts, sleeping outside. I thought, this is the equivalent of 9-11, mm -hmm. right? This should not be happening. And so I, I, Tony Stefani, who's director of the San Francisco Firefighter Cancer Prevention, Oh, there we go. Something just kicked in. Now you can hear me. All right, we can do this. All right, uh, so he got in touch with me and he said, let's try to do some biomonitoring of these firefighters so we can figure out what they're, they're uh, being exposed to. And that might help inform how these firefighters are fought in the future. And it might help us figure out how to protect those firefighters after they have been exposed, what we can do about that and what we might expect in terms of health outcomes and how we can keep an eye on them to do uh, uh, whatever treatment can be done early on. And so he and I started looking around to find a way we could biomonitor firefighters. And we worked eventually with the California Biomonitoring Program. It, it took a while to get it in place, but we ended up testing 200 firefighters and what we were testing before at that point, because we could only start collecting blood and urine about, um, I don't know, three weeks after the fire. 
And a lot of the dangerous chemicals had probably gone through their bodies and then whatever damage you're going to do had been eliminated. At that point, we were testing for things that would actually stay in their bodies for a while, which included the PBDEs, the flame retardants, and uh, cadmium, you know, uh, magnesium. I don't think we did arsenic because that goes pretty quickly. Mercury. Mag mercury, yeah. We tried to do the, those kind of chemicals we could pick up soon, or, you know, at that point in time. And uh, we're also going to test for a set of chemicals called PFAS chemicals. That's perfluoroalkyl substances. And those are the kind of chemicals you use to make something uh, stain-resistant or waterproof. Right, and that's important for firefighters, but if you have that on your gear, then presumably your gear does not absorb uh, the chemicals that are that you're being counted on. You know, it'll just be on the surface, you can wipe it off. So we managed to do that, and so those are the kind of chemicals, those chemicals we found from other studies that you could always find in the soil after buildings burn. So wow, that's why we tested for those. And, and those heavy metals in certain doses can be very toxic related to cancer and heart disease and so on. So we'd also tested for those. But we've, we found, but, 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 but it's, a, I think the most important thing, when I watch what these firefighters are doing and talking to Tony is, is really understanding that the most important thing that people can do other than um, staying away as much as they possibly can, which is impossible in some situations, is to wash your clothes. Wash your bodies. Just keep washing, 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 washing things off. That really matters. That really helps. Now, you have to be careful about the kind of lotions you put on after a shower or whatever, what kind of soaps, because some soaps are uh, cosmetic kinds, and they, they tend to open up the pores into your skin so your skin can absorb whatever emollients or whatever it is a particular product wants to give you, whether it's vitamin E or whatever. So you want to avoid those as much as you can if you can figure out what those actually are. Um, and I have some studies from Europe about which ones to avoid, but the Europe products are not the same as U.S. products. But it's really true that you want to wash your bodies always when you're around as much as you can and your clothing. It turns out clothing could be a passive uh, sampler or collecting of, of some of these toxic chemicals as well. I was going to ask everybody, how long do you wear your bra? But I realize that's an inappropriate question for most people here. <laughs> but it turns out the, the, the bra, you know, if, if you don't wash it a lot, it, you're wearing it through the household or, or around here. It's starting to collect some of these chemicals, that, which is saturating the bra, which will then be another source of exposure, mm -hmm. right? Well, so, those of us, I mean, those of us who yeah. had homes to go home to came home to layers of dust, which we then wiped down and vacuumed and re-lofted re into the air. Who knows what we did with it? It looked like dust, and we all knew it wasn't just dust. Um, but, but it, it, you know, even what you just said about wash your clothes, wash your face, don't use these kinds of pro products feels like the kind of information that should be going out on the alerts, you know, in these kinds of situations. Like, if we actually have that information, that, you know, that ought to be part of the information that starts going out when these kinds of, when these kinds of events happen. That's really true. Well, I was telling all my neighbors to wash your cars right away. Run your air filter. Um, because the, what looked like toxic snow was all over our cars yeah. here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very odd-looking snow. Yeah. So people getting and giving advice uh, here about washing the car right away, using air filters, washing your pets. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and, and vacuuming, not just one pass. It's got to be HEPA filtered, two or three passes, or it won't pick up this stuff. And then, well, I mean, we, we, did a, we did a study on fire station living quarters, uh, looking at the dust of fire station living quarters to see what was there in terms of flame retards. And in the living quarters, we found much higher levels of these flame retards than you would find in airplanes or electronic waste sites or residences or offices. And why would that be? Because firefighters are becoming, you know, they're learning to, it doesn't mean you're brave if you're really dirty, it just means you really need to wash everything down for heaven's sake. So they try to clean fire stations a lot, but it, it looks like it, some of these flame retardants might be actually sticking to the walls and to the ceilings. So we're trying to figure out what really needs to be done. Can you really power, do you have to power wash? I don't really know. But, yeah. A heretical question. Yes. Um, the breathing masks that we all grabbed at Target and Walgreens, did they do anything? Probably not. Number 95. Even so. They, they may have helped a bit, but, you know, not nearly enough. Yeah. I just thought what should have happened is get the kind of mask that firefighters use. Mm -hmm. And... I tried to find a source for that, but I couldn't really pull that off. But yeah, yeah, I think we have to think about these fires are not going to stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, unfortunately. Right. <coughs> we have a question in the back. Yeah. So when you said about those masks, I mean, that target. I mean, what about you know the kind of cartridges and it says ninety-five and ninety-nine. It's a question about the masks and what about the what about the fancy kind that say 95 or 99 and have cartridges have uh, that that look very professional in some way. Yeah, I think you have to. Uh, I think we need to, to, to do some exploring. There's a, a, a firefighter in Arizona named Jeff Burgess has been doing a lot of research and just finding if you're if you're breathing too heavily. And you could be overcapacitating your uh, breathing apparatus, the filter, and you'll start taking in, it'll start reversing itself, you'll be taking in even more. So you have, so I think they're trying to figure out what really, really works and how often you have to clean the filters and all of that. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Charles Patton and Erwin Keller. Um, what have you found so far with the, the firefighter study, or have you found anything yet? Well, we, we've, uh, we've gathered the samples and we're, we're parsing them out to different laboratories, and we won't have the data back until, I think, probably... Uh, maybe early summer. It takes a long time to do these analyses. And of course, this is a study that nobody had planned on doing. We just, but they, everybody wanted to do it. It's just, they had other projects going on and funding is being cut. Federal funding, as you might imagine, is being cut from all these labs. They're losing staff people. 
the losing lab capacity. So it's, it's, it's difficult, but, but we hope to get the data out. And, and I, I never do any biomonitoring study without making sure that uh, the results are given back to each individual so they know their own individual results. They talk to a physician about what its significance might be, what they can do about it, and have, they can compare their data to the aggregated data from the whole group as well. So we'll do a kind of, before it goes out to the public, we make sure everybody knows that we're in a study, what it was all about. But I did have firefighters coming in that were, uh, had been, you know, people that had fought for 14 days straight, they just would walk in and say, tell us how we've been poisoned. We just had these incredible tough stories about fire, from firefighters themselves, what it was like. People were walking in, they, they looked, uh, almost some of them looked in a state of shock. And we had this questionnaire that we, you know, we've done a firefighter biomonitoring, uh, but not in a case such a like this. And we did biomonitors, firefighters. Okay, what kind of fires did you fight this last month? And how many car fires? How many dumpster fires? How many, uh, so on? And they look at me. Are you kidding? It was all of everything all the time. I can't remember what everything was. But can you tell me what was uh, that funny smelling green stuff that was on top of this factory because it smelled terrible, we all felt bad. We don't know what it was. What chemical was that? What was happening when it was burning? And you know, when these flame retardants burn, they also produce uh, sulfur dioxide and carbon monoxide. So if they, you know, it's very dangerous stuff. Have there been biomonitoring uh, studies of firefighters in other disastrous fires? A little bit, a little bit. A couple of places in the East Coast, uh, building fires around chemical plants, um, and uh, uh, but not a lot. Uh, NIOSH and uh, Illinois Fire Institute have. What done is NIOSH? Oh, it's a it's a national occupational health kind of thing, and and they've been doing control burns with fires. Uh, setting up, okay, here's what a house would look like, here's what a room would look like, here's a car, and they would send firefighters in with full turnout gear to, to the body and, and uh, biomonitoring testing samples before they went in and then testing when they got out to kind of see what the exposures actually were. Mm-hmm. And some interesting findings um, that uh, some of the chemicals they thought that this that were going through the body quickly were actually in the body 10 days later. Um, are, there, are there chemicals that stay in the body forever? Not forever. But so many chemicals, you know, they could stay for eight, eight, half-life of eight years or something like that. So that's a long time. Uh, and we're so often re-exposed, it's difficult to know what's an early, early exposure or late exposure. Often depends on the chemical. But it was around. This might be a stupid question, but is there anything that people can do to help purge their bodies of, of these chemicals? You know, there probably are. There haven't been any really solid, as far as I can find, case control studies of uh, detox. And you'd assume that there are ways we could detox our bodies, but it's not clear yet what those might be. There's no really solid science about this that I have seen yet that I think is a reputable study. Mm. Um, uh, Something I do is I bought five pounds of this stuff, Pascalite, from Wyoming. There's a mountain in Wyoming. 
And clay, different clays have different properties, but this one's a detoxin. So I, I mix in a quarter teaspoon every day in water, and I can see the results of this. It, it doesn't happen right away, but uh, I have a detox effect down the line, a couple, three weeks perhaps, every kind of cyclical, every three weeks or four. And so that's my way. Um, there are other detox methods, but clay is a very good one because mm -hmm. it zaps up, it, it, it absorbs uh, uh, Let me all sorts that. of things. So uh, Robin in the audience is, is talking about a clay that she gets from where? From Pascalite. You can look Pascalite. This family owns this mountain and they mine it themselves. So it's some, some mineral that she mixes into her food that she ingests um, in order to, a clay that she ingests in order to leach um, toxins out of, out of the body. Well, the other kinds of things that we can do um, have to do with really basic stuff. And it's really true that chemicals will affect you in, in each of us in very different ways depending on our basic health. Mm -hmm. And if we are getting good, good diets, that is really important. Mm -hmm. If we are getting the right kind of exercise, that's really important. And it's also really important that we are surround ourselves with people we love and that love us. And that is also extremely important. And there's been many studies that show this. My favorite's an old study. Let me tell you a story about this because it's, it's, it's kind of helped. Let me tell you this old, this is an old study that was done uh, with college students at Harvard. College students divided them in half, uh, had somebody come in and expose them all to a very serious rhinovirus, bad cold virus, sent half the students off the library to study. They all got a bad cold. Sent the other half of students to watch a movie about Mother Teresa. <laughs> they didn't get sick. And they, their immune system, you can measure how effective it is by looking at saliva. So, I mean, there it is. And there's so really, our that, health outcomes are, are, are predicted by Netflix, really. <laughs> right. There you have it. <laughs> if, you, no. if you've been exposed to toxins, you might choose these films. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think just viewing it as uh, compassion and, and love and caring is incredibly important. It stimulates our immune system. And when I look at firefighters, they have elevated rates of some cancers. But I look at the stress, the diet, the chemicals they're exposed to, I'm always surprised they, aren't, they don't have more cancers. And I think, well, here is a group of people that have declared themselves that they are going to be human service. They're going to give their lives for the community and for each other. And there's this amazing brotherhood and sisterhood. And I just think the just being around them, the kind of way they take care of each other and their communities is quite phenomenal. Wonderful. Marty, you have a question. Yeah, my question is um, about the soil around people's homes after Thank they move home and if they plant home gardens and eat whatever grows there, are there risks in that? So let's repeat the question. The question is about the the chemical load of 
of our yards and our gardens now and what's the result with things that grow in our gardens? I think, I think it depends on what chemicals are in the soil. Some will be taken up by plants and you wouldn't want to have a garden there. You'd want to uh, dig down and take the top two feet of soil away. Two feet, two feet to the top, and if you have it in pots, just toss it. Yeah, and I can't say that for sure. I think that there, I've heard that there are some people from UCS, UC Davis, that are testing soil to see what's actually there. And so I don't really know what's in the soil. But I know, for example, in Silver Valley, Idaho, uh, there were silver mines that uh, were, uh, the refineries there were just, blew the filters off, the fires were going all day long, the smelting places, and blowing lead and mercury all over the valley. And the EPA had to come in and take away the top two feet of soil. The townspeople didn't like that because it, it made uh, them feel stigmatized that their land would lose value if people knew that you know that this was going on, and they wanted the the the, the mines to come back because the, the mining companies were providing the you know the school buses and the uniforms for the basketball team and jobs and pensions for everybody. But I was actually there at a meeting. Uh, talking to people from diff around the country where different environmental disasters had happened. And in the breakout group where I was afterwards, there were three people from this particular town who uh, had been exposed as kids to a lot of lead, and they could not remember what had been said 15 minutes before around the table. And, and you know, they would say, well, my grandmother was really smart. She owned a, man, a mine, and, and my father drove the school bus, but me, I... I just do what I can. So, I mean, these things are so real in many, many communities, but it's a trade-off people make because they think that that's the only way they'll have a job. So I mean, we keep running to that as well. Yeah. Barbara? Yeah, I had a question. You, you spoke about fire retardants, and I'm, I'm remembering the visual image that was used for this particular event, which is of the plane oh. spreading fire retardant. Red. Oh, okay, um, let's talk about And that. I'm wondering whether there have been studies about the impact of our being bombarded. Well, that's a different, the, the, the flame retardants mostly I'm talking about are the flame retardants that are, um, contain bromine or chlorine and are used in products and furniture. The foam that comes out of airplanes, that kind of foam is uh, ammonium phosphate. And there's been a lot of studies on ammonium phosphate, and it's, it could last a long time in the environment, but it does not bioaccumulate in bodies, and it seems safe. It seems safe. Now, what comes out of those airplanes is also something that has red dye in it. I don't know what kind of red dye it is. There's also something called chemical used as a surfactant, which makes, makes the foam stick to something, and it does work. It stops fires. Uh, 
And I don't know what surfactant that is because that's under confidential business information. The firefighters have told me that the name of the particular product was called Foscheck. So I, I, I Googled it up and did some exploration in about 20 different kinds of Foscheck. Most of them contain this ammonium phosphate that is safe. The other chemicals, I don't know, but if somebody could get me just a bucket of it, I could get tested and find out. And we hope that is safe. I mean, it seems a whole lot safer than the other kinds of flame retardants I've been talking about. But it does, I mean, if you, if you put it in a lot of streams, it will be toxic to the fish there. And of course, that's part of the ecosystem. There's a lot of animals that eat fish. So if any firefighters watching this on podcast um, happen to have a bucket of this, mm-hmm. common wheel is found in Bolinas um, on Mesa Road. Maybe you can drop it off here, just saying. Not from, Maybe not at Nesla. Not from a plane, though. <laughs> not from a plane. No, we'd love to get it checked out and so just see if we can figure out what's in it. But, uh, you know, it worked. It had, you know, it was very useful. Julian? Yeah, I have a question about, um, as part of my job, I'm starting to go to some of these burned-down lots. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them have a sticker that say the EPA has cleared it. I went to a lot that literally still had pieces of the house melted on. I mean, it was not cleared at all. Some of the lots I'm seeing are completely cleared and sprayed with a green substance. Um, they're definitely not removing two feet of soil. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that. And I'm just wondering what are the dangers of even going to those areas now for myself and my clients? So, would you mind repeating the question? Oh, yeah. So the question is how how well has EPA gone in and, and cleaned up around a site where there's been a lot of burnt buildings and they've been, they've been spraying green something or other all over the sites and declaring them then safe? So we don't know whether that green substance is. It was just a marker that this has been cleaned. And they haven't removed soil. Although in some places, uh, I've seen bulldozers come in in, in some places in uh, Santa Rosa and, and it looked like the, the, the soil was being removed. So I can't really tell you. It would be great to start t- collecting soil samples and having it tested because I imagine there's, uh, I mean, that's the way to know for sure. And I'm talking about two feet of soil. That's just what happened in Silver Valley because of all this lead and mercury being spewed out of the smelters. Is that typical? Is that would be that similar here because of the heavy metals that you would find around households? Probably not nearly as intensely as that. But that does has happened in a number of places. And I know where we've done, for example, uh, water monitoring and air monitoring and biomonitoring around oil and gas production sites in Wyoming. The water was contaminated with some of the chemicals from oil and gas production. And people were told, don't drink the water and don't eat the plants that were grown with this water. So, you know, you just really have to grab the samples and do the testing yourself. So you happen to be there with your Dixie cup and you collect up some soil in it. So... Where do we go to get this tested? We could, we could get together after this talk and we just talk about how we would do that, collecting some samples and how to, how to label it, what we collect, put it in, and then we just find ourselves a lab and get some money to do it. If it's not being done, it may be done at UC Davis, but we, we can check on that. But I think it'd be really important to find this out because you know EPA sometimes does a really good job, but not always. There's some real he- heroes in EPA for sure but they don't always have the manpower. So maybe if we, if we can find out who is doing casual testing of soil samples, we'll post it 
with the podcast. Yeah, let's not do it casual, though. Let's find somebody who's doing this real science, and if they aren't doing the real science, let's do it. But I mean, you know, that we can just, uh, consumers, consumers, citizens can walk in with, yeah, we, we, with their mason well, jar. You, you, you want to know what you collected in, you want to identify the site, how deep you look, where in proximity to, to whatever might burn for the car, house, methane tanks, or propane tanks, or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. You, a little bit of detail. Yeah. It's not so hard. It'd be fun. It'd be good. It'd be good. What do they do with the two feet of soil? Thank you for asking. Uh, right. Where do they take it? What happens to it? Well, it's always, that's always a really good question. Uh, presumably, a lot of it goes to an incinerator, and we hope the incinerator is really hot, hot enough to actually destroy this stuff. That's what happens in Kettleman City with soil that's been contaminated with PCBs, for example, or dioxin around other incinerators. So extreme heat will actually destroy these, will actually break these down. Yeah, it can. It can be destroyed with extreme heat, yeah. But some of it may go to a, to- a hazardous waste dumps. We don't know that. I don't know that. I would like to know where all this soil that I saw the cleanup crew is doing, and none of them are wearing sufficient protective gear either. Where, what's happening to all this stuff? That's a really good question. Kira and then Mac. Yeah, Kira. I was wondering. Um, I was just wondering. I, I saw pictures of uh, planes going over the mountain, dropping this uh, powder kind of material. That I assume is a fire retardant. We were, we were just talking about when you were out, out of the room. Okay. Um, but you know, the, we're going to have a podcast, and you can get the answer on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll see you at the office. So we can talk. <laughs> a personal question, if I may. Yes. Uh, in your house, do you have any plastic food containers, Ziploc bags, plastic bags? Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. It's really hard to avoid. It is really hard to avoid. Yeah, they're minimum. Minimum. Try to avoid them, but they do show up. There was a New Yorker. Was it a New Yorker piece a few years ago where somebody uh, wrote about spending a year trying to live without plastics? Yeah. Was that it? In the New Yorker, probably worth searching on and what they had to do in order to be able to pack their lunch and store their food and and. Um, the plastics that are used in making jeans, um, finding plastics in everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting to know that uh, I think it's something like 15% of the natural gas is being used, is being shipped down to uh, facilities in southeast United States, cracker plants, and that cracker plants make these little plastic pellets that are then shipped around the world to make plastic goods. So I think the oil and gas companies, as they see the combustion engine starting to disappear because of other means of transportation, and, and uh, are starting to say, where can they sell their products? Well, it's to make more plastic. And you know, look around the world, plastic, people wouldn't have shoes if they didn't have plastic shoes, or, or chairs, or, you know, it makes, a, a certain level of comfort of living because of plastics in places around the world. So what do you do about that? It, it's quite conceivable we could make some plastics maybe with all this toxic stuff in it. Uh, coming back to our county and the biomonitoring project, are there, are there any plans in the works for doing biomonitoring of non-firefighters, of residents, or of babies that were born or were, were young during the time of the fire? 
Um, well, California Biomonitoring Program um, is now starting a program across the state to biomonitor in different communities. And they're, they're collecting samples now in the Los Angeles area, but they'll be moving around different parts of the state. Uh, and it could be that one of those areas might be here, uh, especially since we have primed the pump about what we're doing, what we did with firefighters working with them. Um, th there was a bit of concern about biomonitoring firefighters because some of the California uh, Public Health Department people thought that this was not enough of a public health emergency. Um, which was stunning, but they get funds from the federal government. Right. So they have to be very careful what they do. And, uh, but now since we've done the, the 200 firefighters and they're starting to understand that there is a great deal of public support for that, I think there will be further biomonitoring that will try to do follow-up. I mean, ideally, we would go back to these same firefighters, biomonitoring them in two months, mm -hmm. and then a year, and keep tabs on the health of them and their families. Uh, who, so who funds, who funds your work? Who funds the, this project? This project of the 200 firefighters was the, the San Francisco. Right. Hey. Oh, welcome. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Whatever you missed you. is going to be available online in a podcast in a couple of weeks. Perfect. Thank you. We got three fun seats right here. <laughs> uh, we have to be in the back. That way we can get out of our <laughs> 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 I was asking about the funding of the work. Oh, this. Every project I do has a different source for funding, and this, this, the fire, the 200 firefighters was funded by the San Francisco um, uh, uh, Firefighter Cancer Prevention Foundation. But we're looking for other funding, and and I think we'll probably find some so we can test more firefighters and keep this thing going. Uh, and the other part of this whole project, because we couldn't get to the firefighters quickly enough after the last fires, is we're, we're working to set in place a process whereby we can start biomonitoring immediately. And we're working with California Biomonitoring and University of California, San Francisco, to put that in place mm -hmm. so we can move fast enough to get the information that firefighters and everybody needs. That's just element. It's, it's funny how difficult it is, but it's, it's done out of respect for people's confidentiality and making sure due process is done. Right, right. So that's what it's, yeah, it's all important. Um. You guys walked in, so is there, uh, just walking in fresh, are there things that you would like to know right now, and it doesn't matter to us if we're repeating because you're here and we want you to, to get whatever information you would like to get? Um, actually, we did the study with her. Uh -huh. uh, so I think all of us, did you? Um, me and Julian um, got tested um, for the study. Uh, it's an opportunity that we never had in the past, and... Um, just want to say that um, the event that happened in Santa Rosa was a huge event. However, it was not the only event that we were exposed to this year. So basically, um, last year we went to, uh, personally, I went to three, four fires. The Wolf Fire, which is the same event we went 
let's say um, on the second day that it started, uh, multiple structures burning, you know, vegetation, vehicles were burning. Uh, then we went to the Garza fire. That was a little bit more of uh, clean vegetation. And then the third event was the Dewilder fire in Mariposa County, where it was jumping the containment line again. So it was again vegetation with vehicles and structures. Um, the guys continue on that fire. Then on October 8th, we went to, a, uh, we started that night um, on a vegetation fire in Windsor and got stuck there for four days, this fire, mm -hmm. uh, the Tubbs fire. There, uh, part of the study that we never realized is that our gear, we are in a thick smoke where we usually use SBAs, um, which are self-containing breathing apparatuses, uh, air tanks that we use when we go to uh, structure fires, right? Because we know how toxic the structure fires are. Uh, for this event, because of the length of the event, we don't have anything to protect ourselves, you know? Um, if we wear the, the M49 mask, what we happens is that we get uh, really tired really soon, and we're not able to perform for a long period of time, you know? So for us, uh, the exposure was real, the study was real, and again, sleeping with our gear on, unable to shower for four days, you know, uh, and having the same yellows, sleeping in the vehicles that were, um, that were exposed to all the contaminants, um, you know, it's scary, because we're here, we wanna help out, um, but in the reality, uh, the, the amount of cancer, um, um, exposures and uh, cases have grown. You know, when, we, when back in the day, what was burning was cotton, wood, you know, solid you know, materials. We don't have that anymore. So again, um, the study was helpful. Uh, I still, we're waiting for our results and I would, it's very scary to get those results. To tell, uh, I'm a father of two. Um, I have a lovely wife. Most of us have kids now. And, you know, that's something that we want to make sure that we get to see them growing up. But um, it's part of the job, I understand. And that is the one reason I would like to express is if there's any fires like that happening in your area, evacuate. Mm -hmm. the, even if you save the structure, yeah, that's great. But you're exposing yourself to something that I don't want to be exposed to. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's my two cents. And if you have any questions, free your free to ask. We're across the street, our doors are open, and yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, what, do, you, um, do you get training either when you're, when you're studying to be, a, training to be a firefighter or ongoing training that has to do with chemical load, with chemical burden? Uh, we do have trainings. Uh, there's, multiple trainings where we, uh, when we are training a new guy, we, we teach him about the importance of wearing the SCBA. When we tell him that that is the number one killer on fires, for especially for the bystanders, um, is not the actual fire that will um, incapacitate. Yeah, incapacitate, I can't even say that right now. Uh, but it's basically the smoke. Uh, the, um, the, every time we have a victim you know, in a fire situation, it's basically, um, the patient is the victim is going to pass out due to the smoke inhalation, 
and then fire afterwards will hit them. That's why it's very important for you, everyone to check the smoke detectors and have all the um, appliances, the, the warning devices that are in place, the carbon monoxide alarm, the smoke detectors, anything that is out there to prevent that kind of uh, exposure. Um, and yes, we uh, get trained to, uh, on that degree. Uh, we know the different levels of carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, and afterwards, we have so many uh, so many cases that we're, uh, every time there's a cancer death on the fire. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Charles Patton and Erwin Keller. Charles, what can we do? I mean, we want to we want to protect ourselves, of course, but we want to protect our firefighters. And what can we do as citizens? What can we? What do we need to be lobbying for with regulatory agencies? Anything like? Is there anything we can do to help? Well, I think uh, the firefighters here will, could respond to that probably better than I could. What we could all do to help you and support you. Uh, but I could talk also about regulation one, and, and that's some other thing. Well, regulation, we need to get out of our houses as many toxic materials as we can. And one of those are these toxic flame retardants that are ineffective. They don't work. They make fires burn hotter and meaner. The, the flames are darker, smokier, and emitting dangerous gases. So that has to happen. And it's starting to happen in California and other places. Sometimes the substitutes for the flame retardants that have been there, the PBDEs, are these new flame retardants. Or they're not new chemicals, but they're the alternatives for the old ones are carcinogens. Mm -hmm. And we don't need these. We don't need these things in our plastics or our houses. That's really important. The other kinds of regulations need to happen is make sure that there are enough firefighters, that there could be turnover in, in, in terms of, of the crew, that you all aren't out there four days in a row that you're out there for short amounts of time, and when you leave, you go back, you, you wash your gear, you wash yourselves, and you rest. You don't go right back to work. There have to be enough firefighters out there to do the job. And there are some fires that maybe we don't send firefighters to. Something else has to happen, because there's some jobs that you guys can't, may not be able to do because the fires are burning hotter and meaner and more toxic. And so when, what is the go, no, go, no, don't go signal? That has to be clear when you go to a fire because these cancers are, are rising, the rates of cancer among firefighters. Mm -hmm. And as he said, IFF, that's the International Association of Firefighters, and it's made it one of their primary focuses. And that's who I work for a lot of the time is trying to figure out where those chemicals are and how we can turn off the pump and get rid of them and keep you guys protected. All of us. All of us, yeah. Do you want to add anything to that, how we could help? Um, you nailed it, yeah, especially on the support. Um, this is one of the things that happen is uh, no one realizes the importance of, of a 911 system until they need them. And uh, again, uh, when we are going um, to fires, you know, we have new policies and we're trying new things. Uh, the information that we're getting from the IFFF 
is basically saying that for every fire that you respond to, you wash your gear completely. We just got a new um, um, washer and extractor that we, it, it cost us $7,000. We just posted that uh, yesterday on Facebook without thinking this was gonna happen. <laughs> Uh, but basically, it, what it shows is the importance for us to wash our gear as soon as possible. Um, and if that's the case, you know, how are we going to treat normal exposures compared to the extended exposures? That, I don't have an answer. I'm not that smart. <laughs> but um, there has to be a different way. Again, for us to put a mask is not the answer. We will not be able to use a mask. Um, for a long period of times because we were, we'll, we'll get too tired and the job is not going to get done. Um, but there, there is a need, like when we go back to base camp, when we go to a base camp, they feed us, we can take a laundry, but it's hard to uh, wash our yellows, which is our uh, outer layers that we go on five fires. And basically we do take showers, you know, and they're sleeping quarters to sleep on. Um, but the reality is the next day we put the same yellows back on, you know. When we go on a typical, when we go on a typical vegetation fire, we're typically committed for two weeks at a time. So if we're out for two weeks, we're wearing two weeks of whatever we came in contact with. So um, as Captain Jimmy here is saying, um, you know, every environment that we come into, you see, you see this room, it's out there with a lot of woods, a lot of uh, natural products, maybe not so much carpets, but um, everything that goes into homes nowadays is all synthetic. So everything is just that much worse off for, for your family and, and uh, for us if we uh, come and respond. And we do our best anytime that there is a IDLH immediately dangerous uh, to life and health situation, we do any preventative measures that we can. We have a lot of uh, gear or breathing apparatus. Um, so we do as much as we can to protect ourselves. But um, those long-term events, Jimmy was out there for 10 days. I think Julian and myself, we were all out there for about 10 days at a time. There was nothing that we could do. It was just a matter of getting the job done. So. There was some mention of even the paint on the walls on your fire station. Do you repaint? Or is there, can you wash it down? Or? We do. Um, I have some pictures uh, that I would like to show you guys after the presentation. Is basically what we do when we come back from a strike team, and it's basically we clean the engine top to bottom, and everything gets washed. Our gear gets washed, and we're starting fresh. You know, but the thing is, the smell in our skin, the hair, even when we use heavy soaps, you know, we can still smell. You know, the wife always can tell, hey, like, oh, you had a fire last night because I can smell it on your skin. You know, that's the pores that it sucks all the chemicals in there. Um, but again, going back to the point of uh, posting the Facebook, the washer. The reason why we don't have a washer in each station, like they pointed out, one of the um, Facebook followers said, is we don't have the funding to get the washer on every station. So every time we have a fire, we have to go to station two, which is the Bangor station, and wash our gear there. You know, this is, uh, again, is it that bad? It's better than before. We, before uh, this washer, the extractor, we had a normal uh, um, washer, household washer. That's what we used. Did it take a lot of the contaminants out? Yes, but not everything. You know, this one is way better, it's industrial. Is better, but again, the funding is not there to support it. You know, 
as a voter here, I mean, I always vote for you guys, yeah. but a lot of people don't understand what they're voting for, and I think you should make that really obvious to voters. And that is the reason why we're here. We, <laughs> we need to educate the public. It's basically a yeah. uh, lack of education. If we don't do our part on educating the public, that's why we're trying to express our Facebook where we have free press, where we can actually post as much information as possible, what kind of calls we went to, um, you know, and fires. Last year we had a dumpster fire, uh, basically a dump truck on fire. Mm -hmm. And the, and the, it, the garbage, it was actually in a garbage truck on fire. And when it caught fire, they dumped it in the parking, which is great. The vehicle was safe. However, we were there with SBAs putting the fire out. And even the, we came out of it smelling like, you know, burnt trash. And it's, that's the type of exposure that we're talking about. That, you know, on that fire, uh, we were able to wear our SBAs, which is our bathing mask. Because it was short term? It was short term, exactly. And those bottles are good for 30 minutes mm -hmm. if you're mm -hmm. in good shape, if you're not new and excited when, while working a fire. You know, that's the difference. Uh, a lot of people are excited and out of shape, and then that's where your uh, 30 minutes cuts down to half or 15 minutes or 20 minutes, and then they have to replace the bottle or get out, you know. But again, all of, all of those factors are reasons why uh, the exposures are real. And, and again, um, I love what I do, don't get me wrong. I love what I do. I, um, on this fire on the top side, there was an actual safe, and that made my whole year. You know, that's the reason why I'm here. You know, but um, it's, it's scary. Like I said, for my kids' sake, I want to be here. I want to make sure I'm, here, I'm there for them. But it's that's the scary part. Not for me. It's for them. So, thank you. I thought of something with a sauna help. Yeah. Um, really sweat. Yeah, there's um, Chicago fire. There's Chicago Fire, I think Chicago Fire is doing a sweat, um, I believe it's Chicago Fire, one of the major um, uh, departments in the United States actually are doing a sweat, a sauna, uh, where they actually are doing exercises and trying to sweat all the chemicals out of them. Um, when they are finished with the fire, they rinse all their gear on site and, and um, they don't bring it back to the station. Someone else takes it back to the station. But they're trying to wipe as much as possible on site. They go back to the station, take a shower, and they go to a sauna until they try to sweat everything off. Yeah. That's big bucks. Yeah. That's yeah. the funding that we don't have, or any of the Sonoma County agencies have. Yeah, Cheryl, is there? That's what. That, and, but this is the difference. Chicago Fire is a huge. I think it's Chicago Fire. Don't quote me on that. But it's a huge department that has so many cancer um, cases that they're realizing, it's, okay, now we have to do something about it. It has to be that bad for them to act, you know? Uh, and that's something that uh, is gonna take Sonoma County longer to get there and realize how many people it happened. Great case scenario is 9-11. 9-11, we lost 343 firefighters. I know a lot of them. Okay, now this is the, the worst uh, part of that story. We lost even more afterwards. I know, I know. Uh, due to, and due to cancer. My dad was 35 years New York City Fire Department, South Bronx, yeah. busiest firehouse in the world. I have nephews, cousins still in the department. 
So we have another call. Um, we'll try to get back as soon as possible and see if I can show you some of the. We'll see you. At Thank you. That's the real story so, there. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, um, I didn't get it, uh, the chance to ask them what they need from us for emotional support, and that's something else I would be interested. In. You know, you were talking about about the effects of, uh, you know, healthy eating and being loved and having family and friends on health outcomes, and and you know, we there was, um, I felt myself really. Um, really um, welling up with emotion at their being here mm -hmm. and it, with gratitude, um, but also wanting to know sort of what they, what they need from us now, now that um, the thank you first responder signs are coming down. You know, what, what can we do for them in the long run? Um, so we'll see if they... Yeah. It would be a really good conversation to have. It really would. There's, there is a pretty high... Yeah. There is an incidence of uh, PTSD among firefighters because they walk into such stressful situations. They're also first, first responders and things like the Boston Marathon. That's where they go, you know. And if you get in trouble, you would call the fire department. In most places, they don't have guns. They're not going to try to figure out who the bad guy is. They're coming there just to help. So they, they go into some pretty stressful situations. It's a bit of depression because their goals are so high. And sometimes they can't accomplish, they can't save what they, the people they want or the, the land. It's, it's, it's a tough, tough gig. Mm -hmm. So it would be worth a conversation to have how a community can give them emotional support. Mm -hmm. I think that. we'll have that conversation. We're their, we're their next door neighbors. Yes, yes, good uh, idea. Barbara. It seems to me that the, the time may be right for some political action as well. If indeed what they're saying is they don't have the finances for washing machines or saunas, yeah. they may think of that as big bucks. But this community, if you look at all those first responder signs, is primed to be asked to help them as well. Mm -hmm. And if we know that this is for their physical and mental well-being, I think there would be an outpouring of support, but it would take some coordination and it would have to be countywide. Yeah, now would be now would be the time to crowdfund something like that. Um, and I think that would be very doable uh, if everybody, if if areas took care of their own local uh, firehouse and 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 put in the, the the washing machines, whatever they need, in order to be able to get that get these chemicals off of their off of their equipment and out of their off the walls and off the floors and out of the firehouse. Well, yeah. That's all after the event of a disaster. The real issue is, as 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 new developed houses are filled with plastic furniture and flame retardant fabrics, it's an education of the entire populace that you don't buy that stuff anymore because the next fire will produce the same result. And as somebody who was at Manhattan in 911, who lost many people in that department and saw five years later those people dying 
of respiratory in involvements that nobody, and take a look, it hasn't changed the chemistry of New York City. They're still buying plastic furniture. There are 6,000 6, structures that are gonna get rebuilt in this county. How do we rebuild them in ways that, that, don't, that will not poison our firefighters or us if they burn? Because this is not the last fire the, that we're going to have. This is where we get the five supervisors involved. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, know that the, I know that the county is, is doing things to try to ease and speed the rebuilding, mm. um, which is understandable and in many ways is great. Um, and the trick there is how do you impose new... Is that something that we impose at a governmental level or is that community uh, education and how do we do that community education so that people know? Um, one thing is we tell them, we tell them, to, uh, we tell them to watch this podcast and we tell them what the what the number what the time index is when you know he's talking about what they experience uh, when those things are burning. Um, and also, the human understanding that we all want to return to normalcy, and many people return to a false sense of normalcy. Two weeks after they you know were able to, they were digging in the ground with bare hands to reach for a china coffee you know coffee cup. I mean, no protection. Yeah. Walking in the woods, it's not a wood fire, it's an urban fire. Walking in the woods, I mean, harvesting their garden. Yeah. And where does the soil get scraped and go to and recycled? And now they're talking about the cement that came out of the foundations is going to pave our roads. Mm -hmm. And what's going to be in the landfill? So what's in the soil? What's going to get reused? How is it going to get reused? And who's watching this? It's it's eight thirty, but Charles, I want to give you the last word if you well, have just, any. Well, just just it's really interesting to talk to you all about the kinds of things that that can happen next because that we can do green buildings, we can do buildings without flame retardants, and as you probably all know, a lot of these flame retardants are there because of the bromine industry. Uh, lots of chemical manufacturers are not bad guys, but the bromine industry—they're notorious. It's just the perfect adversary because they're just wrong right down the road. Uh, and we don't need these flavor drugs, they don't work, and we can use we can easily build without them and just get rid of them. So that's a real possibility. And there are groups with all that kinds of information. How do you build buildings that uh, can withstand fire and don't use a lot of plastic, don't use a lot of synthetics? That's really possible. We could get on top of that and be a model for how you rebuild. That was a really good idea. And of course, to support these firefighters, these extractors, they have them in San Francisco, but they don't have them everywhere. And it's absolutely critical to use these extractor washing machines. But just remember, what comes out of the water, in the water that goes out into the ocean, goes in and then comes back in the fish that the, we are all eating. So, it, you know, it's a, you have to just, you know, where you can work, work. But remember that extractors is not the end of the, the, the you, final solution. Have you created a graphic that could be widely spread that shows, at least simplistically, what you're talking about. There are some the things. The cycles. Yeah, the cycle, sure, yeah, yeah. That would be very helpful. Okay. But, and what, but what I'm hearing... Okay. What I'm, hear, what I'm hearing from you is that all of these complexities have additional complexities down the road um, that we haven't measured yet, that we don't even know quite how to measure yet. And still that doesn't 
Uh, and still that doesn't allow us not to do the thing that's right in front of us that can help. Um, and so maybe that's our takeaway for tonight is, uh, you know, there's a, okay, I get to bring in the rabbinics because it's the end of the night. There's a quote in um, Pirkei Avot, which is in Mishnah, uh, in the Talmud, that says that um, you're not obligate, you are not required to complete the work, but you are not free to abstain from it. (laughs) And so even though we here tonight in this room will not be able to fix all of this, it doesn't absolve us of the responsibility of trying to fix what we can. So I want to thank you, Charles, for being here, for all of your work, for all of this education, and for all of the spirit that you've brought to to our awareness of the world around us. And we thank you for the work and anything we can do to support you. Uh, Let us know. Thank you. Charles Patton. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to a TNS Sonoma conversation with Charles Patton and Erwin Keller. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.